All right. Hey, this is uh, Henry, and this is the Maintainers Anonymous podcast. Uh, I have with me Maggie Appleton. I don't know. I forgot how we met each other, but um, I know that you had a background in anthropology and and also studying open source. And and now you're like, I think, pretty involved in the uh, JavaScript and tech industry in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought it'd be cool to kind of talk about maybe like how you perceive open source before and then now how you see it, like being a part of it now. Yeah, because so I think we met for the first time um, at Joel's house. So I, I work for Egghead and it's run by Joel. Um, and it was in Portland, Oregon. And then we hung out for a couple of days after that and got to chat quite a bit. And I remember just asking lots of questions because I was fascinated by the open source community. I was vaguely knew about it, but not really in depth. Um, and this was, would have been back in the summer. And between then and now, I've ended up researching it quite a bit, very much as a, an outsider layman, sort of vaguely curious um, about this sort of odd world that if you're not in open source and you sort of learn the intricacies of it for the first time, it's... it's I, so I was um, an anthropologist, yeah, for my undergraduate degree and sort of never let go of it, even though I work as an illustrator now. And it, it just it's like the most wonderful culture to explore because it's so niche and weird and subculture and has so many of its own rules and norms and uh, that I think most normal people don't know about. Um, so yeah, so I've just sort of stumbled into it as an incredibly interesting research project for a couple of months now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also it is very niche, but then maybe it's also in- interesting because it's so impactful, right, in the rest of society. Yeah, yeah, that's the the ridiculous thing is um, if you ask normal people about it, they would assume it's small. And then when you realize about Linux, you realize about Babel even, right? Like running the whole of, of compiling all JavaScript that runs on the web, it it gets a bit mind-blowing. It's so invisible in, in everything. Mostly what uh, I had stumbled across first, which I guess is like the obvious cultural angle that a lot of people take on open source, um, is is to point out the fact that it, in in certain ways, operates like a gift economy. Well, if we give a, a basic definition, this is one where people mm-hmm. in open source will have heard this a thousand times. Uh, in anthropology, gift economies are a thing we love to talk about. It's like one of the favorite anthropological subjects that we bring out oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those that gets taught in like anthropology 101 very early on. Um, and it's more as a way to discuss different uh, economic structures that you can, you know, when we say an economic structure, just the way that people exchange goods, services, anything of value. And there's multiple ways to do that. And it's not one single system. So gift economies are simply that the way one thing of value moves to another person is through a gift. And, you know, we might traditionally contrast that with a market economy, which is, of course, when you exchange something of value for money, or barter economy, right? Thing of value for thing of value. Um, and these are sort of set up as the three basic ones. But really, there's, you know, there's, there's myriad ways to intertwine those in different configurations, in a sense. Like, it's not like we have only a gift economy or only a market economy. Um, so that's one thing I was I was kind of curious whether open source people sort of th- thought that when they talk about gift economies, it's as if open source is all a gift economy. Because the way I look at it, it's it's very much a, a mix of both market and gift in a way that's very um, compatible and reciprocal with each other. Yeah, I guess I see what you mean where it's like, it's not just those three archetypes, but like the combination of those. And, and not to get too complicated, but I guess maybe individual projects could be different, right? And different communities. Like it's just like almost like a hierarchy of these things or like at different levels, like 
a programming language or a framework or an individual library, those all might have different like economies, I suppose. Yeah, because because gift gift economy systems, it's mostly about um, the ideas, right? If I give you a gift, the point is not really the object moving from me to you. It's more that it establishes a social bond between us. And that's the important thing that we want to emphasize in the exchange. Whereas in a market economy, we really are, you know, we're trying to make sure that we're paying the right amount of money and the person selling it is trying to make sure they get the right amount of money. So the emphasis is on equal exchange value. And yeah, so gift economies, the emphasis is on establishing strong social bonds and also, um, it works in a in a way that's a bit of a positive debt. So if I give you something, I want to make sure I give you something of higher value than whatever you last gave me. And that sort of indebts you to me in a certain way. And it sounds a bit negative, um, but it's not meant to be. <laughs> so now you next time would have to give something back to me that is more valuable than what I first gave to you in it. And what it does is it just means we are constantly in relationship with one another. Um yeah, so so I, I sort of read open source a bit in that way where uh, not that people are competing to contribute more than one another, um, but you're doing it because... That would be you, great. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Is that not how it works? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when you ask a normal person working in open source, you know, why do you think people contribute to the projects? What are the sort of like bog standard answers people rail off? Oh, um, I would say maybe one of them is, you know, people might realize, you know, how much they have been given, I guess, through open source, how much they're using, and they want to give back. So that that does sound like the what exactly what you're saying, right? They, but it's like kind of maybe it took a lot of time to become aware of that thing. It's going back to the fact that it's invisible in some sense. You know, you're using it all the time. It becomes infrastructure. And so you don't really think about it. And so that causes you to not really need to feel like you're giving back. And maybe maybe talking about the gift thing, you know, when I think of the gift, I think of like an individual individual person giving to another person and usually in person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you kind of picture that person, you know them. Um, with open source, you might not even know <laughs> who works on uh, the projects that you use. And this is really true, like just personal experience of like, you can give talks, like I've done that, and then people have no idea who I am, but they know Babel. Um, not that they need to, but it's just that leads to, I think, this thinking that sort of like with you know, online discourse, like everyone has a username, you don't really know them. It's just some like black box. Right, right. So then it is like, if the thing that makes gift exchange mean something to us, if we lose that um direct social relationship that's what threatens it maybe that's what like makes the economy not quite function the way we wish it would if it, it feels that way i don't know if that's always true but um because you know people so an example i just thought of is like you know people look at stuff on social media all the time of people doing amazing things you know like or just like the example of like you know you buy something online and then they put it on your porch and then the 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 you know, they they put it so that no one will steal it because they take it out of view and someone recorded that because they had that what's the camera I forgot the name of the but you know like and they they tweet that to a bunch of people and then everyone sees that and they feel good about themselves they're like oh I want to do that I want to pay it forward right, right. but 
So it can be good, but I don't know if that's just like you just feel good about yourself or you're actually going to do something. Right, right, so. right. Because um, it ties into this concept. So part of, of gift economies is, is there's a principle called the, the no free gift principle. Um, mm. That there's, yeah. there's no such thing as you can never just give someone a gift and, and then it's like free and no one has any obligations to one another, right? That negates the whole point of, of the gift. Um, that, that if you've been given something, you feel that internal obligation to give back. Um, mm. And there's lots of, you know, theories. Is that human nature? Is that, you know, who knows? It's just something we don't understand. What are some uh, examples? Because I can think of like, you know, when you, I guess, families give other families gifts or when you visit someone's house, you give them a gift. Yeah. Christmas, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, so for sure, a Christmas and birthday presents are always the classics that people refer to. Um, there's two good examples that are specifically British, but hopefully I assume there might be American equivalents, but you can tell me. One is um, uh, rounds of beer at the pub. So when you go out with friends yeah. to the pub here, it's like uh, you will buy everyone at your table or a beer and then the next person does it and the next person does mm. it. And and it's um so there's three types of, of gift giving. One's called generalized, which is parents to children where you don't keep track. It's all just sort of all comes out in the wash, all a bit fuzzy. We all trust that mm. like, you know, we our parents, you know, fed and clothed us and we'll feed and clothe them when they're old. So that's generalized. Mm. And there's balanced, which is which is the pub drinking example where you loosely keep track. No one's writing it down on paper. You're not that bothered, but you're sort of keeping tabs on whose turn it is to buy beer. Hmm. Um, and then there's um, negative is the last one, which is where the each party is trying to get more than the other person. So that examples would be gambling um, or like when companies give out free coupons, but they're really hoping you're just going to like, buy. you know, yeah, exactly. Two for one sort of deal. So that's where, yeah, it's negative because... It's as you're pretending to give a gift, but really you're trying to get one up on the other person. So yeah, so those are sort of the three main categories. But um, when we talk about uh, yeah examples of gift giving, it's certainly ones like even just buying friends dinner, you tend to do it in one for one. Like, you know, you no one's keeping track, but you kind of know. Right. Like when um, when someone visits where you live, you'll like host them or mm -hmm. you'll pay for them. And then when you go to their place, they'll do the same thing for you. So it's kind of balanced. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so there's all sorts of uh, ways that, that it's kind of funny. Like we always assume we live in a market economy, right? We speak that way, you know, economists always talk about the market and are obsessed about the market. And we, we hold economists in rather high regard in, in our culture. Um, but when you start to look around, you realize there's, there's tiny gift economies operating all over the place very intertwined with our market exchanges because um, actually a little like fun anthropology history story is that we've always found in other cultures that have really strong gift economies, they always have market economies that are symbiotic with them that uh, exist alongside them and help them. Um, so the sort of classic example gets sort of rolled out in every anthropology undergraduate course is from um, the Trobriand Islands, which are this uh, set of islands that are I think it's over a hundred and they're scattered. Um, and the people on the islands have a gift economy that doesn't operate just on a one-to-one -one level, but operates between villages and um, on each island. So they have special like um, necklaces made of shells that travel to the right. So they go um, like it's a clockwise direction around these islands. 
And so families will give necklaces to people who like live on the islands to their right. And then there's these shell bracelets that people also value that are given to families to the left of them. And every single time they would travel to one of the other islands, they would have this big ritual ceremony of, of giving the gifts of either the necklaces or the bracelets. And these objects had strong histories. You knew who had owned it and you had this like storied lineage. So certain ones were more valuable than others. And they would do the gift exchange. And then afterwards, they would do the standard market bartering. So they would trade wood for fish and this and that. Um, but they, they sort of had a reciprocal um, gift economy going where it didn't matter. You weren't going to give directly back to the person that gave to you. You were giving in this really large circle and you just trusted that it was going to come back to you at some point by whoever was trading to your left or your right. Mm. So that's like the whole pay it forward concept. So. Yes, yeah. But you you do understand that it's in a closed system at least. So the people right. giving, they know it's not really a free gift. They know they're going to get something back from people who are coming around the other side of the circle. So as long as I think, I don't know if that that really could relate to open source, that if you don't trust that the other end of the circle is coming back towards you, maybe you're not as willing to give. Right, and maybe that's part of the, the issue where you, know, you talk about this closed system and like communities having boundaries. Um, you know, maybe part of the problem is that, you know, the scope is so high and everything is very vague that, yeah, you don't have an incentive to, to do that. Right, because if, uh, if the imagined community is like every developer on the internet, that's a bit large. I wonder if does do you, I don't know if it works more if if you had a small open source community. I'm thinking of something specific like Vue, right? That if they all really know each other and they're all building things specifically for for people who they at least can recognize their username, they know them on Twitter. Maybe there's more, or have you have you actually seen like more active open source communities when there's a smaller imagined group? Yeah, I mean, I, you could bring it all the way down to like your you know, the team, like the Babel team or something. It's like, I, um, you know, if you're on a team, you, you would want to trust everyone there. And so, you know, if I think about like governance, then I don't want to micromanage anyone, even if I'm like the lead for the project, um, because I trust that they know what's best for what they want to do. As long as we have the same, I guess, guiding vision or that kind of broader scope thing. Um, and I think that works really well where it's like, yeah, actually, I was thinking about this recently. Where, um, with with an open source project, sometimes you kind of, especially if you've worked already, you you wonder, you know, should we have more meetings? You know, like stuff like that. It's like, yeah, you know, every most things are asynchronous, and you, there's this feeling inside, like, oh, I need to like do meetings just because that's what I'm used to. And I think it's good to do meetings because I would like to see you know people face to face. Um, you know, and I guess not in person unless we want to, um, I guess spend the, the money for that, but, you know, doing like a, uh, video chat, um, and just getting to know these people as people. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're doing like a meeting, right? So I think that's more of a, just what you're saying, like social bonds versus feeling like, oh, with a company, you have like the one-on-ones and like performance reviews and all this stuff. And I'm like, maybe, you know, open source should be different then maybe we shouldn't try to like copy all these things from the normal quote unquote company just because we're used to it. Yeah. I mean, it, it even ties in a bit to open source culture of, of the more I started reading about it, the more sort of impressed I was by the sincerity with, with which the community is, is really trying to like invent new ways of doing an economic model. 
Um, mm. I mean, it, it is it is quite impressive when when you think about how the model of of you know strict capitalist market culture we all assume we live in it and that it's inevitable at this point. And it's just like very refreshing to watch people very sincerely, actively play out an alternative type of way of doing things. Um, it like speaks to a genuine kind of sort of optimism and imagination <laughs> that like we we are not at the optimal system and we all recognize that. And to actually try and move it forward in practice is like kind of a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe that's what draws people to open source that, you know, similar to like, if you think about like Wikipedia, like I, I try to explain to some friends that are not in tech, I just say like open source is sort of like Wikipedia for code. Right. Right. Yeah. It's glossing over a lot of things, but I think that's kind of the, the gist of it. Does that um, analogy resonate with people? Is that sort of the, the best touchstone for people who aren't in the community? Do they sort of go, oh, okay, I think I understand. I, I don't know. Like, I, I think so because I, I think I need to explain something in like two, three words. Then, you know, Wikipedia is probably one of the most uh, visited sites in the world, right? Top 10, I forgot what it was. And and then people understand code because, you know, they're using apps and they think they know about programming. So I think, and they, they also know that Theoretically, anyone could contribute to Wikipedia. Maybe if they've actually tried it, they know that there's like admins and there's even bots and like there's a process to it. But it's supposed to be, um, I guess, ideally more democratic than just like the official one encyclopedia. I mean, yeah, Wikipedia is it is a good classic example for most people. But then I even think of, um, well, I mean, you, you would know, right? Like the open source way of doing things is so much more sophisticated and involved. In terms of how I've I've seen certain open source practices, like I love what's the plugin on GitHub that shows the emoji for who did what? Oh, well now there is a. Are you talking about the reactions or? I think so. It's like when people contribute to an open source project, it will like list, um, show like images of of who did what, and like say they did copywriting or they did code uh, or who okay. did marketing. Mm-hmm. I yeah, don't know so that is. Yeah, I think you're referring to so Kent C. Dodds. He made this thing like all contributors essentially. And, you know, yeah. So before, or I guess now still, GitHub doesn't have a good way of expressing like who's done what other than through commits because it's the easiest thing to measure. And they focused a lot about the code. Yeah. And so a lot of maintainers realized that open source is not about just code. Clearly there's a lot of other things, not just docs and tests, but you know, managing things. And so he was thinking, all right, we can't really, and a lot of these things aren't really measurable. So he asked, essentially, it's like crowdsourcing this stuff where like, or you yourself can define like, oh, I contributed art. So then I'm going to put like a piece of, like a the picture of art. And then now everyone can say that they did that. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I really like that. I didn't realize Kent built it. That's great. Um, because just seeing that made me think that that, that is the, um, right, like if, if gift giving is so much about you're just you're just getting a social status um, and power in a certain way, but you know again doesn't necessarily have to be in a negative way. There's lots of ways you can have social status, and it's not that you're an awful person. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just it's just like a, a recognition that gives back in a way that uh, I'd think like editing a Wikipedia article doesn't uh, give you any sort mm-hmm. of reflection back that you've contributed. Um, right. Or, or is it? Um, I don't know if you guys have done this, but Gatsby, I mean, they're like a, definitely a, an open 
um, and then also market commercialized blend of an open source project. Um, we're sending out swag to people that contributed. And obviously that's not sustainable for a true um, community sourced, you know, community funded open source project. I thought that was an interesting example of, of acknowledging contribution in some sense. Yeah, because I guess with that, it, it gets into just like how like logistics and like shipping things and all that. And I actually got a t-shirt for one of the first projects I contributed to, which is Angular hmm. 1. I, I did a bunch of um, essentially just linting fixes, like spaces and stuff. And and I got an email from one of the maintainers like, hey, thanks for your work. Here's a t-shirt. And I was like, whoa. And that like super, it really did encourage me. So I, that definitely does work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I ha- we haven't done that ourselves. Yeah. So. And it's probably less about the t-shirt, right? Than this thing of the, the idea that you now belong to a certain community. It, it does. Uh, I mean, the small version of that is like stickers. And, you know, you know, uh, companies can print out thousands of stickers. They kind of leave them on the table, um, which is fine for them. But like for me, it's like, no, I, it costs money. <laughs> so I'm like, and I also feel weird when it's like, if I just leave it out there, like they don't even know me or if, you know, they get to like talk with me or something. I'd rather like, get to know someone and talk to them and then like at the end like hey if, if you want a sticker I'll give it to you kind of thing yeah yeah which is kind of just like because that's an actual right like uh, socially meaningful gift as opposed to actually the, the free sticker on the table is the exact like idea of the free gift that then becomes it isn't valuable to us because there's no human attached to it <laughs> yeah I guess that does remind me of what you're saying about gifts where it's like it's not really about the sticker or the t-shirt it's about it's almost like a reminder that we had that interaction or something, right? Yeah. Versus the thing itself. It doesn't really matter what that was. And meeting someone, having a good conversation is like the takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious whether OSS projects had had thought, uh, whether it's a discussion in the community about creating ritual around uh, contributors and acknowledging contributors. Yeah. I think that would be, that's something that we should be thinking about. Um I mean, this ties into like my experiences in in the religious setting, where it's like everything is about ritual. Um, you know, it got me thinking. I actually did like a discussion at the maintainers conference um, in DC a few months ago, and I called about like open source as liturgy, and liturgy is just another word for ritual in a way with other people. And it's kind of, well, yeah, what are the rituals that we participate in? Um, and and it, it is kind of hard to think about what those are if you've never thought of it that way. But some of the ones I thought of were like, we do have like more like, there are rituals of, in all different sizes, right? So one would be like a yearly thing that would be like Hacktoberfest. Like every year, GitHub, Jitter Ocean, they do that thing where they try to get new people to get involved. And there's like a, that day, which is good and bad because from the maintainer point of view, you that's the day where you're going to get like 100 PRs that you have to review which is not necessarily something you want. <laughs> um, so it, it kind of reminds me of this thing of like, I would like, you know, an opportunity for people that use open source to thank the people that do maintainers. Mm. The, uh, so like, you know, why is, you know, why are they called GitHub issues? It almost has a negative you know, connotation already. Mm-hmm. And so some people suggested, hey, we should have like a thanks tab. Um, but if we had a day where we just thank people, would the maintainers feel overwhelmed by the thanks? I mean, like that, it's kind of funny to think that, you know, when it's all coordinated that way, it doesn't feel as like you know genuine. I suppose, even though it, it is. So it, it's kind of funny how it kind of um, 
it's a lot more nuanced. You can't just like create this sense of, you know, uh, people actually being thankful. But when you get that random email from someone, mm. you're like, wow, I really feel it, you know? Right, right. Yeah, because that is with, especially with ritual, it is like, yeah, you need to open up the space for someone to have the option to say thanks, but not in some sort of like, here's a meeting time and you're all going to like get on and say thanks, right? Because that's when it feels manufactured to us. But but yeah, you 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 would know through through lived experience more as well, like actually participating in rituals where there's there's like open space for what you can and can't do and there's not strict rules, but there's sort of you sort of know, you know, gives you an opportunity to to explore giving thanks or or acknowledging certain things uh in a way that's like a balance of like agency and and social control <laughs> yeah and actually now that i think about it you know with church or this kind of thing a lot of rituals are fixed in a way so like you know we go to worship on sunday or something or you have your small group every week and you know, i'm just talking from my own experience mm-hmm. um, we have a prayer meeting on wednesday these are all like very fixed things. And you would think that would be essentially a bad thing, but it's like actually sometimes we need the rituals because we're not in the, we're not in the mood mm-hmm. to feel a certain way. And one of the most important things I'm trying to learn is kind of this thing of like um like changing our behavior through these rituals and actions rather than just thinking our way. To changing ourselves, right? Right, right? The act of doing, going through these motions essentially um, can lead you to belief. Right. Um, even you don't want to stay there because, like, obviously, going through the motions is not the most, it's a negative thing. Mm-hmm. But I think we should acknowledge that the motions help us to feel a certain way when we're not feeling well, right? Right, right. Because, yeah, it is, it's just that the ritual sets up, right? Like a, a loose structure where, like, mm-hmm. If you, you know, going to church every Sunday, it's, it, you don't have a set, you don't, not every Sunday is exactly the same and you have certain structures that will always happen, but then there's still sort of uh, your own agency to play within those. Yeah. And I think for me, it kind of reminds me of this idea of, and maybe this is related to gift giving too, mm. uh, surrender. So that is a, something, you know, none of us really want to do because we want to feel in control. And part of that is, you know, doing something over and over is kind of, not you're not in control in that moment right you have to mm-hmm. kind of surrender to whatever this thing is and that for me is actually a source of freedom mm-hmm. and i think that's difficult to realize because we tend to think of freedom in terms of uh, you know i'm going to use the term like negative freedom versus positive freedom um, negative freedom meaning no one's forcing me to do stuff and i want to be able to have the agency to choose um, versus freedom where it's like within this you know boundary this limitation, I am free to, you know, what you said, explore that space. Yeah. Yeah. It's similar to even to pull it to like creativity, but like, especially with mm-hmm. design, you always say the best design happens within confined boundaries. You know, you set yourself mm. up a grid and then you work within it. Um, but a completely blank page is, is, is the worst, you know, it's unhelpful and you're never going to get anything good out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was thinking of um, other things related to, to, this, I suppose, gets more into like the broader economics of open source and not necessarily, there's like the gift economy aspect, right? Which like, you know, you kind of get, it fits it, you know, it works. Um, is there is there still a, an opinion in the industry of um, not bafflement, but confusion about why it exists? Is that still a thing? Because in researching, I stumbled across 
research papers by probably more, you know, economists or, or political scientists who would very sincerely write academic papers going, you know, open source is such a confusing, contradictory thing. Why would people give away their free labor? This makes no sense. Um, and treating it as if it's some sort of mystery, which reading those, I, you know, I sort of snarkily read them in like that anthropological way of being like, it's obvious why they do it. Like social meaning means more to us than money. Everything we do proves that all the time. <laughs> um, hmm. I, I was curious whether within within the industry, um, it did would they read those papers and think they were daft, or sort of is everyone a bit confused as to why it works? I mean, I guess I can't speak for everyone, even though I guess I'm in a lot more involved than most people. I'm not. I don't know. I could say it's both in a way where. Maybe firstly, I want to say that there's a difference between what people say they believe and what they actually believe. So maybe all of us are like, oh yeah, I think open source is a thing, but the way we act, we don't actually maybe appreciate or I guess I don't know the right word, but it's like, I think it's kind of like everyone has an awareness of open source because, you know, at this point, literally 99% of all software is going to use open Mm -hmm. source. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that their behavior is different because they know that fact or that belief. Um, they just, like I was saying before, it's just, it's just there. And so it's kind of an acknowledgement of like, if this is a thing that open source is by volunteers and all that stuff, you know, maybe we should do something about it. It might just, is, so is, do you have the idea that maybe it's like, there's not the right, not tools. That sounds a bit, you know, um, like Patreon, right, is like one of the only platforms mm-hmm. that of that kind. And what is it? The Open Source Collective is the other one. Or what's GitHub's version? Mm. GitHub sponsors. GitHub funds. That just came out like last year, though, right? This year, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, sorry. Yeah, I guess last year. It's, it's 2020. 2019, technically, <laughs> in my head. <laughs> yeah, that it's also so incredibly new. Like, it's sort of all the structures for it just being invented off the cuff. That maybe it is that it was in that awkward transition phase. Like what you said, I, I think a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily new if we think about the gift economy thing. But, you know, actually, I remember um, I saw a tweet from somebody that was talking about how, like, the, I mean, you know, the idea of Patreon comes from patron. And so there are people that they wrote, like, books or were able to create music or art because people sponsored them. So, you know, that idea is definitely there. But the difference, I think, with Patreon, these things, is that it's online. So, mm. you know, with them, it's probably they know all those people, right, that are sponsoring them. But with this, it's like, it's kind of yeah. almost one way where like, you don't know these people, but they know you. Right. And that is very different, I think. And obviously global, where it's like in the world. And they could stop at any point as well, right, every month. Which could be kind of part of the problem where you kind of feel like people are always asking me, aren't you scared that like, you know, at any moment, all the money could be going away because of the economy or whatever is something that happened in their lives. There's a, definitely a psychology of patronage, if you want to call it that, that I have thought about a lot as well. But no, it does seem the Patreon model. It is, I mean, I always, I always like um, sort of a little bit talk about, right, like internet culture as it's also so brand new like it's like the internet is still a complete baby and we have yet to figure it out obviously like Mm. given like the the sort of all the awful things that sometimes play out on the internet and patreon also seems like it's very much part of that like it's it's very much like we realize this isn't really working right because you know 
someone uh, who subscribes to your Patreon doesn't really get like a meaningful social interaction with you, which is probably what they want in some sense by through their monthly payment. And like, you don't know who these people are in any meaningful human sense of like having a social interaction with them and a bond. So like on a fundamental level, like this whole, this whole system is like not, not doing what we need it to. <laughs> I have like, I have a lot of thoughts with that. Cause like, you know, even Patreon, I think they tried to, you know, it used to be like there was Kickstarter, right? And that was a big thing. Mm-hmm. And you go to all these different things, um, even GoFundMe. And so with Patreon, they essentially were going to call themselves a crowdfunding platform too. It just happened to be monthly, right? Instead of one time. That's a big difference. But I think they've changed their like model to be more of like a membership platform, which is kind of speaking to what you were trying to say with uh, like it's not really about funding, but about like creating a, a community or a group of people um, that kind of align on the same thing. At the same time, it, it is kind of interesting how, you know, you could say in a way the market will affect the product. And so mm-hmm. um, most of these platforms are all focused on, I mean, I guess maybe you could say rightly or wrongly on money, right? And so the UI is focused on that. And so it's not really about making relationships. It's about... <laughs> extracting money from people. Yeah. It feels like. And you could say the same with GitHub. I, I feel like GitHub is also, even though it's about open source, a lot of times it feels transactional in a way as well. It's like efficiency of code and project management versus like dealing with, you know, burnout or um, uh, mentorship or onboarding or offboarding, even like all these different concepts that are not in the product because you have to do all these things outside. So you kind of have to work around the system. Example in Patreon, uh, and and now GitHub sponsors for me. What I did was, you know, they have this idea of tiers, and that is just, I guess, to- totally from Kickstarter, right? You know, if you give this much, you get this thing back, and then you could say that is like a gift economy kind of thing. Mm. But um, I think in practice, it leads to its own form of entitlement, possibly. Right, because before it was free. People are already very entitled. They're like, you know, fix my bug, that kind of right, thing. Right, right. <laughs> and then now it's like, well, I gave you a dollar, so now you should talk to me for an hour or something like that. <laughs> and so, like, the value of who you are becomes like nothing. And, and this is why it kind of reminds me of like the busking thing, where it's like, right. are you actually worth that much? And um, so I tried to purposely change my tiers so that there's not an easy way to monetize. Or, or put a value to the thing that you're essentially paying for on the tiers. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought of things that are very personal. And I, yeah, I try to make the whole thing more personal. So, you know, like for me, I like board games and video games. So I thought of a number that was tied to that. So like Seven Wonders is a board game. So I said $7, I'll play board games with you. And it's not like, a, it doesn't mean like playing board games with me is equal to that. But it's just kind of an arbitrary thing I thought would be funny. And then you have to like be in the same place as me, right? I have to either go to your city or you come to me. It's kind of like a special park that I would do it for free. I, I don't need that to you know play games with right, you or right. anything. But I think <laughs> that it's a good way to kind of think make get people to think a little bit differently about supporting what I'm doing. Yeah. Your your Patreon rewards were some of my favorites of all the ones I've seen. Like, isn't one of them like I'll play ping pong with you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, because now, you know, you're making me think of it like that Patreon in a way is 
um, running under the guise of being a gift economy, right? All their marketing language and the way they pitch themselves is very much that we are supporting the new internet gift economy. But on the actual functional level, they are pure, like, the way their tools are designed and built is is for a market economy, right? They're like $5 and yeah, everyone else is like t-shirts and posters and they'll do this and that for that amount of money. And so it's sort of like just using the gift economy stuff to like sell the thing and then definitely not following through on it on the way it works. <laughs> I mean, this is probably similar. I think it's the same as like design and like everything else. It's mm-hmm. like, we don't know how to not think in the market economy, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. And so like when we make a website, it's, you know, that, there's that joke about how there's only two layouts. <laughs> um, and, and so I think it's similar. It's like when we make this thing, oh, of course we need tears. Of course we need this. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just a fundamentally different way of seeing the world. And in, in some way, maybe, maybe I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's like, it's just, I don't know. We don't know how to even start thinking about how that works. Because it, it does slowly turn into this, you know, consumerism sort of thing right it, you become a, bra- a brand you're selling t-shirts and, and stickers and, and it's just like i don't want to be like a corporate whatever right yeah yeah i mean i think it is a, a little bit inevitable of simply that like we ask now in this like historical moment are born into a period where like capitalism is sort of the overarching worldview but you know anyone who's done the slightest bit of reading about history you know you know there's been all sorts of different ways of organizing society over time and organizing economies and markets and that uh it's certainly not like the end all be all like thing that will always be so i i like i like to have like the optimistic <laughs> hope mm-hmm. that we're just sort of muddling through it and that and that pa- things like patreon are like a sort of good signal that we we like the ideals of the gift economy. We're not playing them out yet, but it's sort of like we've we've said we want to go running every morning, whether we will or not is still like wait, you know, to be determined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sort of putting it putting it like as a as a goal, but very much not doing it yet. Um, so I'm, I don't know. I'm really hopeful that like in the next you know decade or whatever of the internet that we would find more ways to to preference that that actual social interaction element over like five dollars for a t-shirt sort of functionality <laughs> how, do, how do you think we'll get there well a lot of this is is related to developers and open source really right when you think about the power that programmers have in the world and their ability to like define the way that the internet works and what tools do and don't get built um i think this is what fascinates me mostly about looking at programming from an anthropological point of view is that the the cultural power that programmers have is enormous, and yet that's never spoken about in the community, right? Like if you think of everyone who's who's building apps all the time or building tools, um, and they of course build tools that you know will be useful to them and they think will be valuable to society. So then it makes you think, well, what they think is valuable to society is like the core belief that sort of becomes the engine for what gets built. Um, and so you see a lot of you know. Um, sort of maybe very quantitative numerical self-improvement tools go around a lot, which tells you that that's something that programmers think is a good, valuable thing. And not that it's not, but that's a very overly represented app group. (laughs) Right. Right. Like the idea that like we're going to solve all our problems from some app or something. A to-do list app specifically. Um, Preferably one with charts in it and graphs. (laughs) And that has an API to everything else. (laughs) 
Yeah, I guess I, I actually I struggle with that. It's like I have this engineering background, mm. but then I have this faith background, and I feel like they're not. No, it's not that it's in conflict. It's more of like I don't want to measure everything, mm. and I don't think it's maybe even a good idea to measure some things. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about something like uh, prayer or something, or like I don't know, it's like is that something that you want to really like make efficient? It doesn't. It doesn't. Right makes sense to me. Right. Um, (laughs) Um, I will say, I'll I'll preface this with saying, I've thought about this way, way too much because I I wrote my undergraduate thesis about the quantified self movement, if you've heard of that. mm -hmm. So yeah, the people that uh, enthusiastically track everything about themselves in a very hobbyist way. Um, And so I looked at that anthropologically, like how do we, why did that become a thing that's valuable? You know, how do we become the age of the Fitbit? But this was back in like 2012, 2013. So it was even before sort of the giant wave of it. <laughs> I sort of wish I had like written it this year. Um, <laughs> because it's gotten so much better. But, but yeah, that it comes out of a very uh, specific belief system about um, what's valuable, you know, specifically like the scientific, scientific revolution, um, you know, the enlightenment that we, you know, very much, you know, our like brains and um, our bodies are two distinct separate things and that the brain is better Mm. than the body. And so we have to constantly be using our rationality to like keep the body in check and obsessively, you know, amass numbers on it to make sure that it's like in line. We're like being good productive capitalists all the time, the most we can possibly be. Um, It comes out of very specific historical ideas that are not part of human nature, if that's even a thing, and are not uh, inevitable, you know, and we don't have to sort of value these things. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's kind of like the the water we swim in thing, where it's mm-hmm. like we are born into it, so we can't not think that way mm-hmm. until you kind of realize like that wasn't how it was until that moment. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I, that's something I've been reading a lot about recently, like that whole, I guess that essentially epistemology, right? Like seeing a. Uh, how we learn, how we know in a very specific way of like truth mm. being this, uh, abs- the most abstract thing. Uh, but then I think in experience, it's like the more abstract something is, the more it doesn't really help in a way, right? Right. Um, it doesn't help reality. Um, and so, yeah, like how do we move beyond this like rationalist view of everything? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think you maybe you'd spoken about that on another episode. I'm trying to remember who it was with, on like the the value of subjective truth being being something you've realized is like so much more important. Yeah, I was specifically mentioning um, this book called Personal Knowledge, mm-hmm. and I mean I mention it all the time now, but <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not tired of it yet. But um, and it's hard to talk about it because. I don't want to come across as saying that like everything is relative and that, you know, like the whole, like there is only, or there is no truth and you kind of just do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't actually believe that, but it's just an admission that even if there is some kind of truth out there, the only way we can experience that is through our own personal life, which is subjective. And that trying to remove your personal bias, which is not always bad because obviously bias is not necessarily good um that if we get rid of it that would lead to a lot of issues as well because you know this idea of 
being detached from reality, not experiencing the world. Like what you said, like brain in a, or you can say brain in a vat, right? Like that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. The, and this actually ties a lot to, I think, uh, faith and religion too, because in, in my reading, like, you know, especially Christians, like we kind of bought into this rationalist mode of thinking such that if you think about like the old church or even just Catholic church, you know, like there was an emphasis on ritual and liturgy, which involves the body. You know, think about baptism is like immersion into the water or like communion is eating the body and the, mm-hmm. uh, or the bread and the wine. And so if we slowly become more and more mental, then we remove all liturgy and then church and, you know, religion becomes just belief and, you know, and now the most reductive version of church is like you sing some songs and then you listen to like a, a sermon, which is just like a TED talk or something. Right, right. And like, is that really what church is about? Um, and so you don't want to go the other way where it's like too much into the liturgy where it's like the, the problem was people thought that focusing on that ritual was idolatry because we're not focusing on God. We're focusing on the things of this world. But the other way around is like, we think the mind is more important than the body. Right, right. That, yeah, like that it took on certain historical um, beliefs. Interesting. And I think that affects everything. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said, though, about the whole thing of the subjectivity and the, um, the, yeah, maybe an objective truth outside and apart from ourselves. Like, of course, there are like atoms and protons and sure, yeah, we know that chemistry, like we get it. There, there are like certain scientific truths about that stuff. And yet, um, it probably isn't as important or relevant or interesting to us as however we're experiencing the world in like an embodied person, you know, in a culture and a historical place and time. Um, that that experience is always going to be more important than whatever facts are in like a textbook about science. But but the denial of that has been like such an impressive project of like Western culture over the last <laughs> couple hundred years. Is yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's definitely a part of that philosophy where it's like the more abstract and mental and rational you become, the more that history doesn't actually matter, actually, mm-hmm. right? Anthropology doesn't matter and thinking about those social aspects don't matter because truth becomes disembodied, right? It becomes abstract out there, not relating to ourselves. Yeah. And I think that... Yeah, I've always been, I mean... uh found that curious or or intriguing too about um when you just talk about like programmer culture you know the whole um obsession and glorification of disembodiment in in the sense of you know the whole thing of um hack all night drink soylent you know you you are not a living being you know you're just like a mind in the machine and and you're just completely cerebral and, and that you don't need to like be in your body and you don't need to work out and you don't need to move and you don't need to eat real food um, and even, you know, the whole, you know, the, the singularity is, yeah, right. And you're going to upload your brain into the cloud. Mm-hmm. And these, these narratives yeah, are still yeah. like very present. If you get on Hacker News any of these days, there's for sure at least one link that's like glorifying this exact sort of philosophy about the world. Um, that it's, it's very like alive and well. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I don't know if I bought into it, but I definitely felt it a lot. And then I think I had to realize like, at least in my faith as a Christian, it's like there is an aspect of, oh, like if you think you're going to go to heaven, it's like a spiritual thing. But we talk about this idea of the incarnation of God becoming a person. That's a spiritual being becoming a physical being. Then that would at least say that that's important. Mm -hmm. The resurrection is also the fact that 
you know, body is important, right? And so from those kinds of, you know, you could say doctrines about the faith, and it's like, you, I don't think that is compatible then. And I, it's like a embracing of the fact that we are within a body and that, you know, that physicality matters. Um, even though I think a lot of religions actually also emphasize the spirit and the mind over the body as well. This is even, I'm not sure if we should even get on to get onto it on, on this like episode of, of the podcast, but at some point, like if we want to dig into um, embodiment and metaphor. So I know you just spoke about uh, metaphors we live by on your recent talks. Mm-hmm. And that, that book is like probably my favorite book in the whole world that I like can't get over and like I'm obsessed with it. Um, but its relationship to how we talk about metaphors of of programming and the internet is is very like kind of tangential to what we're going on here. <laughs> that embodiment yeah. is is the water we swim in, and even if we don't think it, when you really look at certain specific examples, it makes you realize the way we speak about everything and the way we experience everything is like inherently embodied. I see, like like the hunger and all these different kind of yeah bodily things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but and then I think like as people in tech and using tech more and more, it does cause us to forget that, right? Like mm-hmm. we're on our screens all day and now there's like VR and AR and like, mm-hmm. is it, you know, like the matrix type stuff. Um, it does help us to forget. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's again, that I hopefully see it as just like, sort of like a glitch in the matrix moment or growing pains moment where we haven't figured out how to make the internet embodied yet, or we haven't figured out how to make tech embodied. Um, and so we, it's like, we're just like operating as uh, in the mindset of enlightenment, you know, mind over body, uh, you know, philosophy of the whole thing. So we just think we can just make everything a screen and make people stare into it and just type with their hands and that we don't need to use the whole body. But uh, I I would hope that as things evolve in the coming decades, we'll, we'll realize that's obviously like not working for us, (laughs) um, and like, yeah, so two things to fix, embodiment and social bonds, not working right now. <laughs> I feel like they're, and they have to be related, right? It's like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's certainly one and the same. <laughs> yeah, that's those sort of like big design problems that I do hope some, you know, high-minded think tank somewhere in Silicon Valley is taking seriously and working out in the next iteration of like <laughs> the personal computer or the internet or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, there's also a sense where if the majority of Silicon Valley thinks this way, then maybe the way out is not through Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's probably not Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, perhaps it's, yeah, in the idealistic world of the democratization of teaching other people to program mm-hmm. who are from different cultures and think in other ways and will build different things with the tools we give them. I don't know how good of a job we're doing at that. It's just, yeah. like, I, I just read a, a book called uh, Tools for Conviviality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by this guy, Ivan Eilich. And he, it's a really difficult read for me, but a lot of it, I think about this in terms of programming, where I guess he was an anarchist, and he thought that all institutions at some point kind of, have you know a lot of issues so like having like the idea of school he does not like that like or even professions um and (laughs) and i think it's mostly because he thinks that kind of like this it's like if there are a group of people an elite group of people they get to decide what the future of this thing is then the normal people 
um, don't have the chance to learn how these things work because you have to go to school for like, you know, five years, like a doctor and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, his view is rather, I think for most people, very extreme, but it's interesting to hear something about how, yeah, in a way, the more professionalized something becomes, the harder it is for anyone to get into it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, of all professions at the moment, like programming is probably the most impressive in its openness and... Mm. There's uh, for the amount of you know gatekeeping that we complain about that it actually is rather impressively welcoming and open or, or tries to be in its best efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, far far more so than than being a doctor or lawyer or you know whatever it is, chemical engineer. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, we at least have the the narrative that anyone can be a programmer, whether they can or not. That you know is is another question, but. You know, when you get into like material issues, do they actually have a laptop? Do they really have an internet connection? That sort of thing. Yeah. Like from that point of view, it does feel a lot more accessible. Like you just need the some sort of computer or you can go to the library, have internet. Um, and now we have all these free resources. Mm-hmm. I guess even open source in a way is is part of the... Yeah. Because then it's the open invitation to actually build meaningful things, right? Like that's that's one of the most valuable entry points where you you know it's it's one thing to be like okay just do all these programming puzzles that that won't matter versus like do this one specific task that will go into a product that people are really using i imagine that's a huge tipping point for a lot of people yeah and i guess yeah for all the issues of boot camps you know i guess they have their place in terms of instead of going to a school um or they're another one where i'm like oh maybe the, the the current the current imagination of, of what a boot camp is is just is just like a bit rubbish right now and it just needs to evolve into something actually functional and not just some exploitative like we'll take 20 percent of your salary for 10 years sort of mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so i know we had some other things uh topics but i'm wondering if it's better saved for another one because yeah you could probably go on for a long time <laughs> but, if yeah, we yeah, started yeah. on embodiment and metaphors it'll go for a while <laughs> yeah i think that could be a good next one then um, yeah, we can we can end it there then. Yeah, thanks for thanks for chatting. Yeah, thanks so great. much for having me on. I like I so appreciate that you run this podcast and talk about things that aren't just like what framework do I need to learn and like what's the new animation library for React. It's like <laughs> this is this is like needed interesting cultural conversation around programming. Thank you. Yeah, that makes me feel good too because I I know when I first was thinking about it, I was I don't know, it's, and I think I bought into that mindset too of like. It has to be about code. And like, mm. like like what I said, like my belief is that it's not. But then I think inside, like in my body, I still feel that way. So it's like uh, yeah. maybe going back to what I was saying about practice, it's like doing this podcast helped me to <laughs> embrace that more. Yeah. 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 And I mean, nowadays, everything leads back to code. You can tie anything in. <laughs> yeah. That's what my friends tell me all the time because I keep saying it. And they're like, oh yeah, Henry, yeah, you, you probably think this way. It's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Check out our website, maintainersanonymous.com for show notes and transcripts. If you have any feedback, ideas, or guest suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter at left underscore pat. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash henryzoo.